In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All the kids up through the eighth grade, please come forward. My service is mixed up. Good morning, everyone. What would you say is, so far in your life, is the best thing you've accomplished? What would you say? What would you think? Getting into college. Getting into college. Way to go. What else? Anything else? I know it's a hard question. Hmm? Making friends. What would you think was? you say something? No? Well, let me tell you. In our second reading today, the Apostle Paul, who is one of the greatest saints of the church, whose most of the New Testament are his letters, but it didn't start that way. Uh, Paul was a, 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 a very learned scholar, a Jew, went to the best school, got into college, went to the best school, and then Jesus comes along, and Jesus changes everything, except Paul didn't recognize that. But other people did, the apostles and other people who loved the Lord. And so they began to change their lives, and, and the Jewish, a lot of the Jewish, not all of them, a lot of the Jewish religious authorities became, I don't know, angry, hurt, afraid, including Paul, who was Saul at that time. And Saul began putting Christians in prison. Saul began being involved in killing Christians, getting rid of all the Christians who were, who were also Jewish at that time. But they followed Jesus, and, and, and Paul thought, that's, that's just wrong. And so what do you do about it? You kill them. You get rid of them. Y'all don't do that, okay? Don't do that. But then Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision. In fact, knocked him off his horse, blinded him, and, 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 and then eventually revealed to him what he was supposed to do. And so Paul, who had every credential in the world, I mean, he was a Jew, he went to the best school, he got his degrees, he got, I mean, he, he, he had it all. Everything, he had it. He was very well respected in the Jewish community. But not when he turned around and began to follow Jesus. And he says in our reading today, everything I had, everything I've accomplished, everything I've done is worth nothing compared to my love for Jesus Christ. Compared to what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. And I think we have to remember that. I mean, we all, we have to, I mean, certainly we go after things that, we're, that we need and want in this world. We, we seek accomplishments. We seek to do good things. 
But don't let those good things be without honoring God. Those are so important. And St. Paul teaches us that. All those things that I... And he used all those things that he learned as a Christian. He knew the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament. He knew it frontwards and backwards. And he used all that to, to find how Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. He began to teach that. So those accomplishments are good, but not without seeking first the kingdom of God. So keep Jesus in mind, no matter what you do, college, friends, seeking friends, whatever it might be, always keep Jesus first in your life. And it will all work out. It'll all work out. Okay? All right. Thank you all for coming up. If you want to get a packet over here from Mr. Giesland, you can do that. Good morning to all. I had three or four jokes lined up to begin my sermon, and then our choir master sent me one that I'm going to use. And so if you don't like it, <laughs> blame him. So a preacher decided that a visual demonstration would add emphasis to his Sunday sermon. Four worms were placed into four separate jars. One, two, three, four. The first worm was put into a container of alcohol, as in drinking alcohol. The second worm was put into a container of cigarette smoke. The third worm was put into a container of chocolate syrup. And the fourth worm was put into a container of good, clean soil. At the conclusion of the sermon, the, the preacher reported the following results. The first worm in alcohol, dead. The second worm in cigarette smoke, dead. The third worm in chocolate syrup, dead. The fourth worm in good, clean soil, alive. And so the minister asked the congregation, what did you learn from this demonstration? And old Maxine, who was sitting in the back, raised her hand quickly and said, as long as you drink, smoke, and eat chocolate, you won't have worms. I want to begin this sermon by asking a question. What would your plans be if you knew you only had six days to live? If you knew you only had six days to live, what would your plans be? Would you go visit your family? Let them know how much you love them? Would you just kind of give up and go wild and party hardy? Would you fall on your knees and make amends to God? What would you do if you had six days to live? According to our story today from John's Gospel, Jesus had six days left to live. John tells us it's six days before the Passover, and we know that Jesus ate the Passover meal, the Last Supper, and was crucified the very next day. 
So what did he do six days before he died? Well, we are told that he went to a home in Bethany with his friends whom he loved dearly, Lazarus, Martha, Mary, brothers and sisters to one another. And according to the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, the visit Jesus made in Bethany was at the house of Simon the leper. And all three Gospels tell the very same story which means, as some scholars have speculated, that Simon the leper, who was probably healed by Jesus at a previous time, was either the father of or another brother to Lazarus and Mary and Martha. We know that Bethany was a town about two miles from Jerusalem sometime earlier, previous to this visit. We remember that Jesus had performed the absolutely greatest of all his miracles, the raising of Lazarus from the dead after four days of being dead. And at that time, Martha had confessed, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. And so while this was not his first visit to Bethany, it would prove to be his last visit. Perhaps more than anyone, Mary sensed that fact. Maybe it was something she saw, something she heard Jesus say that told her that this visit was going to be different from the others. Perhaps as she met him at the door, she could see it in his eyes. The Gospel of John carefully lays out the story. A dinner is being given in honor of Jesus and his disciples. And typically, Martha is in the kitchen and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And apparently, without a word, Mary takes out a bottle of very costly perfume made from pure nard, pours all of its content over Jesus' feet, and then wipes it with her hair. The whole house, John says, was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The whole house, every room. Now let's play around with this for a moment, with Mary's motivation for doing this. Why do you suppose she used the whole bottle? I mean, this was a very exquisite, costly perfume. The text says it was pure nard, an aromatic oil made from a plant in India. We are told that Mary's flask of perfume cost about a year's wages, 300 denarii. Now, don't just hear that and bypass its significance. Meditate on that little fact for just a moment. Let it speak to you. One year's worth of wages. Take whatever you make in a year. Imagine yourself setting it aside. $10,000, $20,000, $40,000, $80,000, $100,000 or more. Set it aside. That's what it costs. Even today, with our ability to get anything we want around the world, a pound of nard imported usually from India goes for about $30,000. Now, folks, you don't pour the whole bottle of something like that all at one time. But Mary did. Why? Well, we can't be sure 
but there's always room for speculation. Perhaps she was so overwhelmed by the presence of her master and it was an uncontrollable act of pure compulsion. Have you ever done anything on impulse that was somewhat out of character for, for you perhaps? Let's say you're very tight with your money, counting every penny, and one day without giving it much thought, you buy a whole room full of furniture. That kind of thing. Maybe that's what Mary did. This perfume was probably the most precious thing that she owned, and she wanted to share it with Jesus, all of it, every last drop. She didn't think about the consequences or the cost. That didn't matter. The only thing that counted was showing her love for Jesus. There's a lesson in that, don't you think? Mary teaches us that if we're going to give anything at all to Jesus, we need to give everything to him. You don't reserve a small section of your heart for Jesus. If you give him any of it, you give him all of it. Perhaps Mary teaches us that. Now those of us on this side of the resurrection, remember that this is no ordinary visit for Jesus. It is more of a farewell dinner. Jesus has come to say goodbye. They will never have a chance to be together like this again. It is their last supper. In just a few days, Jesus will be arrested, tried, and sentenced to die on the cross. And so this is no time for restraint. It is time for holy extravagance. And we all know what that's like. You know, maybe you've had a son or a daughter get married. And they put together their invitation list and they get registered at Dillard's or Target or Bed Bath and & Beyond. And they purchase the wedding cake. They buy the wedding gown, rent the tuxedos. They rent the space for the rehearsal dinner. They put down the deposit on the banquet hall. They contract with the caterer. They make their reservations at the motel where all the guests will be staying. God only knows what the total cost is going to be. But then that's beside the point, isn't it? Having your son or daughter get married is hopefully a once in a lifetime occasion. A time to celebrate, a time to pull out all the stops, a time for holy extravagance. And then there are other occasions calling for extravagance, except they're not as joyous and upbeat, but they are every bit as real. For example, you're rocking along, going to work, taxiing the kids to soccer games, to piano lessons, attending committee meetings, working out every now and then, you've finally struck a healthy balance between work and play, between your career, your family. You're into a comfortable routine. And then all of a sudden, your husband, your wife, your child gets a little indigestion or they find a knot. They go to the doctor and the doctor feels around and runs some tests and comes to the conclusion that he or she has cancer. 
and without warning, your tidy little world is turned upside down. And you say, but wait, this is not a good time. My calendar is filled with activities and appointments. I've got places to go. I've got people to see. But no matter, you make the arrangements. You wipe the slate clean and prepare for the long ordeal of surgery and recovery. And after that, chemo, it will be weeks, maybe months, maybe years before you can even begin to think about getting your life back to normal. But then that's the least of your worries, isn't it? All that matters for the moment is the health and the well-being of your loved one. And so you hold nothing back. You throw caution to the wind. You do what needs to be done. It's a time for holy extravagance. All this is to say, in spite of Judas Iscariot's objections, Mary was right. Jesus was no ordinary guest. This was no everyday occasion. It was a sacred moment. And it called for an extraordinary show of devotion. And Mary's not the only one who understood this spirit of holy extravagance. A week later in the gospel story on Good Friday, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pontius Pilate, asked for permission to bury the body of Jesus. Pilate agrees. And so Joseph and Nicodemus, both members of the Jewish council, both secret followers of Jesus, they take Jesus' body down from the cross, carry it to a nearby tomb where they lovingly wrapped it in a linen shroud along with a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes. The scholar, the biblical scholar William Barclay says it was the Jewish custom to wrap the bodies of the dead in linen cloths and to put sweet spices between the folds of the linen and he continues, Nicodemus brought enough spices for the burial of a king. This spirit of holy extravagance comes right along with Jesus' teaching. He said in Matthew's gospel, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man finds, and then he hides the treasure. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Over and over again we see this pattern when individuals experience the reality of God's unconditional acceptance and love, their lives are transformed, their hearts are opened, and they will go to any length to express their gratitude for God's amazing grace. Folks, when the Spirit of God takes hold of your life, and you experience the wonder and the joy of God's peace. And you know in your heart the gifts of salvation and the promise of eternal life. It's not enough simply to nod and say, hmm, that's nice. No. You want to do something. You want to tell somebody. You want to share the good news of God's love with other people. In other words, in the words of an old renewal song, I'll shout it from the mountaintop 
I want my world to know the Lord of love has come to me. I want to pass it on. This is what I hope you will take home with you today. Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead so that you might have the gift of life in all of its abundance, both now and for all eternity. The question is, what are you going to do to show your appreciation? Will you make a token response? Or are you willing, like Mary, to pour out a whole pound of pure nard? It doesn't take much wisdom to see that Mary's approach is the preferred one, does it? It can be costly to be a disciple. But what Jesus offers far outweighs any cost of following him. To come before God the Father without fear, with our sins removed, wiped clean, to live forever in his presence far outweighs anything we might choose to give up out of love for him. Isaac Watts said it best. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.